Thank you all for making it out tonight for the first installment of Mondays with the Modern Mystics. I'm really excited about this series. I'm excited as well to hear from Mark and Lori the intention I have and part of the reason why I'm partly using the microphone so that folks can hear me well uh, in this room that has goofy acoustics and I'm partly using it because we'll put the recordings and the slideshow presentations up online uh, and so I'm looking forward to hearing the sessions that I'm not teaching as well. When we started talking about modern mystics, there were two names that immediately came to my mind as two of the principal teachers that were my way in to this particular conversation, to this way of knowing God. Um, two folks that really, you could almost say, are the current day apologists for mystic ways of Christianity. And what do I mean by apologist? Anybody know that word? Apologists are not that you're apologizing for it. It's not saying you're sorry. It's actually making the case for. Sort of the salesperson or the, the person who says this is the way this ought to be. The Christian apologetics is a whole field in theology that makes the case for Christianity. And so when I talk about an apologist for mystic ways of knowing, um, two of the biggest voices in that are Cynthia Bourgeau and Richard Rohr. And you'll see that the two of them do a lot of work with each other. And so I'm going to introduce them each separately, and then we'll talk about their work together. So I'm going to present for just a few minutes tonight. You'll also hear directly from them. The videos that you'll see are mostly just them talking, so if you can't see that well, don't worry. You're mostly listening to what they have to say. And we're going to hear a little bit from each of them, hear a little bit about the themes that tie them together, and then we'll have a chance to experience some of their work at our tables. So let's start off with Richard Rohr. And... I'll say just a word about Richard Rohr before I have Richard introduce himself to you. So Richard Rohr is a Franciscan Roman Catholic priest. Not all Franciscans are priests, but he happens to be one. Uh, he's a teacher and known internationally as a Christian theologian, and as he's written more books than anybody I know. It's kind of amazing. And he's had a really big influence on all sorts of folks spirituality, uh, and he's had one of the most varied careers of any Catholic thinker that I know in terms of he presents at conferences from Davos in Switzerland to the most evangelical place you can imagine. Uh, the only circle that he's not always welcome in is Catholic circles. Uh, Richard Rohr can't always teach in a particular diocese. There's a whole bunch of Roman Catholic bishops and archbishops in the United States that have barred him from coming into their own diocese, which to me is like a badge of honor. Uh, so Richard is a bit of a hero. Um, and Richard, my family, my dad had a, a relationship with Richard Rohr. Richard got started before he got big and famous like he is now um, one of the things that sort of put Richard on the map was a series of men's retreats he did. Uh, so if you have a, a person in your life who is into the whole like promise keepers, men's evangelical stuff, Richard Rohr 
is a really good writer to hand them, particularly some of his books around masculinity, because he finds ways to do masculinity that are spiritual and non-toxic. Uh, and he'll pick up some of the themes that are there in that you know, masculine spirituality stuff, and he just reinterprets them in some beautiful ways. And my dad went on one of his early men's retreats and totally changed my dad's life, got my dad way more interested in religion and spirituality uh, and really like vocation and all sorts of things. But so I've known about Richard for a really long time uh, and he's been a big hero. Richard currently teaches, he's all but retired, uh, but he founded a center in Albuquerque, New Mexico called The Living School. Anybody here heard of The Living School before? Yeah, so um, we've had a couple of people in the congregation that are graduates of the Living School. It's a really intensive sort of continuing ed course. So the two videos you'll see, well, two of the three videos you'll see are introductions to the Living School, but one in the voice of Richard Rohr, and you get a little hint of what Richard Rohr is like as a teacher, because if you'd enrolled in the Living School, you'd get a lot of Richard Rohr as a teacher. And then the other is Cynthia Bourgeau, and you get a hint of what she is like as a teacher. So I thought they were nice little short introductions to each of them. So here's Richard. Maybe. Why doesn't this want to go out the right sound thing? Windows well enough to make this settings actually appear. There we go. It's sort of, it's not a seminary, it's not a university, it's not a program for personal enrichment, although it's a little bit of all of those. Uh, the reason we called it living was because we wanted it to be an example of life itself in terms of behavior and relationship and, and communication and not just academic. Well, I'm going to use one of those theological words that uh, I'm very in love with. Incarnation means embodiment, enfleshment. 
Now we have pretty much associated incarnation with Jesus, the personal incarnation. But the real principle of incarnation is that the spiritual world is revealed in the material world. And, and so I want to uh, teach people to take incarnation to its logical conclusion in science, in, in earth care, in, in, any, in sexuality, in any form of engagement with the physical world, that to not see that or treat that as if it's inferior. So that's our goal, full incarnation, taking incarnation and, and therefore to its conclusions. And therefore, there is no such thing as profane. There is no such thing as secular. It's one sacred universe, beloved of God. That would, that's the full message, I think. So you get a little hint there. That's a lot of what Richard does. Uh, he'll take something that's a teaching in theology that's well known, like incarnation, and through a sort of mystical lens, just blow the top right off of it and say, okay, incarnation, that's normally something we think about as Jesus. What would it mean to think about what incarnation as a principle means in our day-to-day -day life? If you were gonna start with Richard Rohr, uh, and you aren't a promise keeper, um, then I would encourage you to start with this book. It's got a couple different covers. Uh, this is my old used copy, and this is what used copies would look like at a used bookstore. And Richard would tell you, go buy it at a used bookstore. He's taken a vow of poverty, so he doesn't care. Um, but this is the new cover. It's called Everything Belongs, uh, The Gift of Contemplative Prayer. It's one of the simplest cases for contemplative prayer I have ever found. Uh, I'll, I, he, in this book, at one point says he discovered that prayer was less of a process and more of a posture. And I had to have read, I read that sentence when I was in college, and I read it like 18 times in a row, and it was just sort of this aha moment for me. He has a way of phrasing things and turning things that help you see things differently. Here's a couple of quotes from Everything Belongs. Life is not about me, it is about God, and God is about love. When we don't know love, when we don't experience love, when we experience only the insecurity and fragility of the small self, we become restless. Try to say that I don't know anything. Richard is big on the idea of the beginner's mind, uh, that one of the biggest obstacles there is to the development of the spiritual life, to entering into contemplative prayer, is thinking we already have the answers. Try to say that I don't know anything. We used to call it tabula rasa in Latin. Maybe you could think of yourself as an erased blackboard, ready to be written on. For by and large, what blocks spiritual teaching is the assumption that we already know or that we don't need to know. We have to pray for the grace of beginner's mind. We need to say with the blind man, I want to see. And finally, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. He'll sometimes also say it, 
we do not think ourselves into new ways of practicing, we practice our ways ourselves into new ways of thinking. So Richard Rohr has become, and he's preached everywhere and taught everywhere, and he's become this voice for uh, the contemplative movement, for mysticism, uh, that's really, really, really important in the life of the church. Uh, and he's sort of given a gift back to the church. Before I move on to Cynthia, I want to pause for a second and say, Richard would tell you, Richard writes in a number of his books, that a lot of what he does is reinterpret some teachings that Thomas Merton and a number of his circle really introduced. He would say that Thomas Merton was ahead of his time, and so while Thomas Merton was very popular in his own time, Thomas Merton didn't have as big of a footprint as Richard Rohr has today. It also helps that Richard Rohr is a Franciscan and thus allowed to travel and to teach outside the monastery. Uh, Father Thomas Merton was very, very, very attached to his monastery in Kentucky, didn't travel a lot. But there's a way in which um, Rohr is sort of an inheritor of something that Merton started. And I would say, though, that Rohr is a lot more approachable than Thomas Merton. If you've ever read Thomas Merton past the seven-story mountain, past the very narrative journey into when he's starting to do theology and contemplative work, it's really, really, really dense. Richard Rohr is much more colloquial, much easier to read. You can read a Richard Bohr, a Rohr book in an afternoon in a way that Thomas Merton, you just, my brain explodes if I try to do that. So um, I would say it's important. I thought about when we talked about modern mystics, they're sort of in the background today, one that I might have done, but the two that they teach really were not the gateways for me. So Rohr is a really approachable way into the work that Thomas Merton introduced in the 1960s and 70s. The next voice, Cynthia Bourgeau, is what I would consider the more accessible voice to the other Thomas. So if I was going to map two Thomases, I would map Thomas Rohr and Thomas Keating. Cynthia Bourgeau is probably one of Thomas Keating's most important students. She was very close to Thomas Keating. Thomas Keating was a monk in Colorado at Snowmass who helped introduce the technique of centering prayer, which is what I taught tonight as the, um, at our contemplative prayer tonight. This very quieting down way of using a sacred word to let go of your thoughts. That was Thomas Keating. But again, if you try to read Thomas Keating, he's super, super dense. Um, and if you read Cynthia Bourgeau, she can also be a little dense, but she's not nearly as dense. Um, so Cynthia Bourgeau is also, unlike Thomas Keating, was very able to travel. Cynthia is actually an Episcopal priest of the Diocese of Colorado. Um, and she has become really sort of the number two teacher at the Center for Action and Contemplation with Richard Rohr. Uh, and she also has this huge following of her own. Uh, so I want to let you be introduced for a second to Cynthia Bourgeau. Hopefully this one will just work. The Living School is often has been described by, by one of my co-conspirators, Richard Rohr, on it as an underground seminary. 
And the idea is that we're, we're really trying to help people invite them into the great tradition of, of a different way of understanding theology, of a different way of understanding theology and practice, and a un different understanding of how these things come together inside your life so you go out into the world. Uh, so it's a, it's a school that fill us, fills us on the one hand with great ideas that have always been there in the Christian tradition, but haven't been emphasized up to that point. Uh, that they tended to get pushed out in favor of more kind of rigid and judgment-based and doctrinal and exclusive ideas. So it's teasing forth these great, inclusive, expansive, dynamic ideas that have been there in our Christian makeup forever, uh, and combining them with really hands-on formation and, and basic spiritual practice, meditation, the, the classic spiritual arts of Christianity, and then all with, with an eye to go out forth into the world and walk the prophetic line, uh, being as what, what we often call in the school a multiplier, one who takes things out into your own line of work, your own vocation, and, uh, and brings about that light of inclusive, mystical, gospel living right in whatever circumstance you're in. I love a line that actually comes from the Sufi poet Rumi, the great spiritual master, who says, you know, even if you even if you tried and failed a thousand times before, even if you fall enough, come, come. Ours is not a caravan of despair. And I think there's a genuine understanding here that we're that religion is not something we do with our better moments. It's not a persona. It comes out of authenticity. There's a realization that we're all wounded healers, and both parts are equally real, but they. Uh, they, when we can bring them in line with something else, which is our willingness to serve, they come together to create that new creation, which each one of us can become, and by the grace of God, needs to become, because the world needs human beings. I thought Christianity failed. Just hasn't been tried yet. The end. So the.
You know, let me uh, back this up with a little bit of history. I don't want to bore you with history. But I know for most people, the very word contemplation, they say, where did that come from? Well, uh, what happened is that our word prayer, that Jesus uses a lot, the Bible uses a lot, had already been cheapened, trivialized, two centuries into Christianity. And it became a functional, problem-solving, practical thing. To pray meant to make announcements to God and tell God what you needed. It was a transactional thing, all right? So after 313, when we become the established religion of the Roman Empire, you've probably heard how these very sincere seekers went off to the deserts of Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Cappadocia, which is eastern Turkey, and that became the birth of what we now call monasticism. The reason it happened was because the main line of Christianity had become so it became fast food religion. Right? Everybody was just Catholic because the whole kingdom was now Catholic. And you were Catholic because you were Italian, not because you met Jesus. And you Protestants discovered that about us. Thank you very much, because you're right. But uh, nevertheless, there was always a, a strain that wanted to go deeper and say, what's Jesus really talking about? So they started using another word for prayer, and that word is contemplation. It's lasted down to our time. So in the Catholic Church, we have contemplative monks who make that their whole life, contemplative orders. It's really a different form of consciousness. It's not saying prayers. It's living in constant unitive union with God and everything around you. So whatever you do is a prayer. That's why Paul can twice say in his letters, pray always. He can't mean walking around saying the Our Father all day. And the very fact that in Luke's Gospel, they have to ask him, teach us a prayer, like the disciples of John the Baptist have. We can assume he hadn't taught him a verbal prayer. His form of prayer when he goes off to the desert is what we would call contemplative prayer, where you rewire this mind so that everything you do is connected in loving union with the moment, with whatever's right in front of you. That's contemplation. Now it takes practice. I'm not there yet. I've been practicing all my life. On my better days, I touch upon it. I can enjoy it uh, for moments. Uh, but it's hard to maintain a contemplative mind 24 hours a day because you keep getting pulled into argument, emotion, feelings, hurts, agendas, all the rest. So uh, you have to practice rewiring this. The normal way you and I are wired is dualistically, right? Uh, where you're presented with good or bad, gay or straight, black or white, good or, or false or true, and uh, male or female, and then you're supposed to choose one of those. <laughs> that's, the, that's why America's so angry today. Really, I'm not exaggerating that. When that's the only mind you have, and you have to make a false choice and make men better than women or women better than men, you know, you're never happy because it isn't true. It's never true. It's just, it's a false truth. And then you ensconce yourself in it. 
and have to defend it and have to defeat the other side and show why they're terrible. That's the non-contemplative mind. Now, it's really only been the last 50 years. It was Thomas Merton, the monk in Kentucky, not far from you guys, who pulled back the veil and said, Christianity doesn't teach contemplation anymore. After the Reformation, and we started fighting one another, and then the various Protestant denominations started fighting one another, you can't be contemplative anymore. That was the death, the death of contemplation, because that's the triumph of dualistic thinking. Once you're fighting, you're dualistic. Trust me on that, all right? You've got to choose sides. You've got to prove your opinion. Every debate society can't seek high truth. It settles for a low-level truth between these two debaters. And, And that's all we have left. So if we don't rediscover the mystical, contemplative, non-dual mind, and I use those three words interchangeably, they have the same thing. I don't see how we are any alternative to Western civilization. I'm going to make that bland, or that big a statement. I don't know if it's bland or big. But uh, I just see Christians largely having the same prejudices that everybody else does. That people look much more like their state (laughs) than, uh, you know, uh, than, than Jesus. And that... That's pretty evident right now in this country (laughs) that uh, we reflect what part of the United States we're from much more than having read the scriptures. Now, I've got a book coming out in a few weeks that's going to be called Just This, Just This. And it's just about 50 little exercises to help you to be present to just this, that little leaf there sitting on the grass. And honor God in that and be content with that, and delight in that, that's contemplation. The best simple definition I can give you of contemplation is a long, loving look at the real. Real with a big R. When you look at something long enough that you can love it, and let it be reality for you, you're at the first door of contemplation. I don't have to judge it up or down. I don't have to analyze it in or out. I don't have to say, will that make me money? It's just a leaf. And God created that leaf for some unbelievable reason. I don't know why. And I'm the first eye that's ever able to delight in it. That's Contemplation 101. And it sounds so simple. In fact, it is so simple that it's hard to teach. (laughs) It's really hard to teach. Then... Once you have that mind, then you'll know how to pray. And prayer of adoration and thanksgiving and joy will come before just asking for things. Not that there's anything wrong with asking for things. But when prayer becomes simply talking God into things and asking God for things, you know what stays center stage? The ego. It's all about what I want, what I need. Now God is my personal servant that I can get to stop the hurricane in Texas, you know. Uh, That doesn't create highly enlightened or loving people. So that's why we teach here the contemplative mind. 
and then we send people back, hopefully, as much more effective change agents. And they're going to be much longer lasting because now I don't need to win. I don't need to have people agree with me. My truth is held within me, and I offer it if people want it, but if they don't, it's, I know it's their loss, it's not mine, it's not mine. I can still enjoy it, because again, it's the indwelling spirit. We, As Paul says in Romans 8, we do not know how to pray. We don't. The spirit prays in us through groans unutterable, through feelings that we didn't even know we had. And thoughts. I mean, my best sermons, I preach just when I give them. I didn't think about them ahead of time. Do you understand? They come just there. When, if, and when I can remain in the flow. But the secret is always to stay in the flow. And then your gift comes naturally. 